Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan, and this is my Labor Day message. Labor Day has been a celebrated national holiday for well over a century. That means that virtually all of us grew up celebrating Labor Day, the first Monday in September as part of the greater Labor Day weekend, a three-day holiday, unconnected to its historical roots. For most of us, Labor Day weekend was the end of summer vacation and school began the Wednesday after Labor Day. Don't get me started on the subject of kids going to school in August. Summer vacation for kids runs from the end of June until Labor Day. Going to school in August is probably one of the seven deadly sins, for all I know. Nevertheless, Labor Day has an interesting history, originates from the late 19th century, and as with most historical periods, there are lessons to be learned that have important meaning for all of us today. We'll be back right after these messages. For most of our nation's history, we were an agrarian society. The family farm was the basic unit of commerce. Work was done mostly by hand with the help of animals, and a large family was necessary to survive. Achieving success was a hard and constant battle, and every family member was expected to do the work. The farm provided the necessities of life for the family unit, but whatever was produced over that survival minimum, was brought to the local town to trade for other goods and services. The population of local towns consisted of entrepreneurs, businesses, and a variety of surface personnel, such as doctors, barbers, blacksmiths, and the like. But the products from the family farm were the commercial engine for the local economy. When hardships like drought and bad weather reduced the output from local farms, the entire town suffered. In times of excess, everybody prospered. The 19th century was a time of great innovation, but the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is generally considered to be 1712 when Thomas Newcomen invented the steam engine. In 1764, James Hargreaves invented the spinning jenny, which allowed for multiple balls of yarn to be spun at once instead of one at a time by hand on a spinning wheel. James Watt improved the steam engine in 1769, making it more efficient 
and Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin in 1794, which allowed cotton to be separated from its seed quickly. Most clothing was made from cotton, so the cotton gin allowed the South to earn greater income from its cotton crop. Those 18th century inventions served as the foundation for massive industrial expansion during the 19th century into the early 20th century, which would drastically change humanity's way of life forever. The primary outcome of the 19th century industrialization was to harness energy sources other than humans and animals to run machines that reduce the need for handwork by individual workers. All sectors of the economy became more efficient, even family farms, and as a result, there was a mass migration of people into cities to find work. In the early part of the 19th century, Cyrus McCormick invented the mechanical reaper to harvest crops and Elias Howe invented the sewing machine. The latter half of the 19th century saw the invention of the telegraph, telephone, electricity, the internal combustion engine, efficient production of steel, and the introduction of the assembly line by Henry Ford to manufacture the Model T. The advances of the 19th century and early 20th century also led to building manufacturing centers in the cities called factories, where multiple fabrication processes were used under one roof to assemble a finished product. The Industrial Revolution increased efficiency, decreased cost, and led to the invention of many products that made life easier and better for most people. As expected, however, the upheaval of society created hardships and risk for many. The cities were not equipped to handle the large influx of people. For workers, the cities were dirty and overcrowded. Workers were exposed to unhealthy conditions and disease. Wages for factory workers were low, so most workers lived in poverty, while factory owners and the newly formed managerial class prospered. When married people of working age migrated to the cities, they left broken families in their wake. Most often, the heavy and dirty work in factories and on assembly lines meant that it was the father who left home. The plan was to bring the family to the city once he found a job and satisfactory living quarters. The temptations of city life easily captivated young workers, and the promise of family reunification was often broken. The broken hearts and hardships were directly felt by the spouses and children left behind, a social problem that has had a direct impact on future generations. The blues is a music genre that originated in the Mississippi Delta. The lyrics speak about the worries, loves, and hardships faced by folks there trying to survive in an often hostile world. Albert King, one of the three kings of the blues, composed a song that tells a story of that era better than any history book. The lyrics are impassioned and unforgettable. Here is Albert King and 
Cadillac assembly line.
As part of the Industrial Revolution, factories became the manufacturing centers for new procedures and products. Factories require energy, so they were built near energy sources in cities. As the population increased, more people were available to work and they needed jobs. The new manufacturing economy forced the migration of able-bodied workers to urban areas. At first, employers were not restrained by regulations and unions. Workers were easily exploited. Worker shifts usually were 12 to 16 hours long without adequate time for food and rest, and they were often required to work seven days each week. Without adequate time off, injuries were common due to the repetitive nature of factory work. Errors due to fatigue often led to dangerous accidents. The competition for factory jobs allowed employers to pay low wages. Men's salaries averaged $8 per week. Women made $4 per week and children $2 per week, all for the same work. Since employers, managers, and supervisors earned much more money and worked fewer hours, the resulting earnings disparity was a source of anger. Child labor abuse was an additional component of factory work. Children could fit into small spaces and were required to make equipment repairs, often with machines still in operation. Injuries and death were an increased hazard to this vulnerable sector of the working population. Workers were also subjected to physical discipline by supervisors, often for falling asleep on the job. They could be beaten with leather straps and doused with water to keep them awake. Sadly, these punishments were also inflicted on children, many of whom suffered permanent injury or death at the hands of employers and supervisors. These abuses of basic human rights can only be considered a form of slavery. And inevitably, rational people demanded the elimination of cruelty in factories and modifications in working conditions, wages, living conditions, and job safety to provide an acceptable and tolerable lifestyle for workers. Workers and their sympathizers, realizing that there is strength in numbers, began forming alliances to force changes in work conditions. These alliances grew into formal organizations whose purpose was to bargain with employers on behalf of workers' rights in a variety of industries. These organizations, known and identified as labor unions, became a major influence in achieving economic and social gains for workers. At this point, I do not intend to discuss the history of labor unions in America, but to talk about the goals of the labor union movement and its influence on politics of today. The rise of labor unions in the early 20th century coincided with the communist takeover of Russia and the birth of the American progressive movement. 
in spite of the well-deserved benefits for American workers through actions of labor unions. The philosophy and goals of the unions were very much aligned with those of Marxism and international socialism. Marxism taught Samuel Gompers and his fellow socialists that trade unionism was the indispensable instrument for preparing the working class for revolution. Workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. The founders of the American Federation of Labor translated this notion into the principle of pure and simple unionism. Only by self-organization along occupational lines and by a concentration on job-conscious goals would the worker be, and I quote, furnished with the weapons which shall secure his industrial emancipation. For the American progressives, the rise of worker power through labor unions was the first step in what they hoped would be a Russian-style revolution right here in America. Violence in the streets and class warfare seemed to predict that outcome. The Great Depression changed all that, however, as the economic collapse gave the progressives the crisis they needed to use the federal government to begin imposing socialism on America. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal was the tool in their never-let-a-good-crisis-go-to-waste scenario that allowed the enactment of the socialist agenda without a second civil war. Decades of progressive change with a few moments of conservative sanity have brought our nation to the edge of the precipice. As always, the lessons of history should not be ignored. The goal of today's progressive movement is to force a majority of people into a state of dependency on the government for every necessity of life. This recipient class, dependent on government subsidy to live, can be counted on to vote to maintain their recipient status. The provider class, perpetually outvoted, is eventually to be taxed out of existence, leaving only the powerful and wealthy elite in control. I'm sure you've all heard this, but let's talk about what the importance is of work. Here's this quote, give a man a fish and he will feed his family for a day. Teach a man how to fish and he will feed his family for a lifetime. The lesson is that there is dignity and meaning in work that arises from the successful completion of a task through personal creativity. The feeling of independence from self-sufficiency produces confidence in one's ability and an optimism for a prosperous future. The real lesson of Labor Day is that a true free market economy 
gives each of us the opportunity to achieve his own version of success through dedication and hard work. This is Dr. Dan. Resist tyranny. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything gonna be all right this morning. <laughs>